Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Russell. It's me great pleasure now to welcome to Viewpoints for the first time Russell Morris, an iconic uh, Australian singer-songwriter. Russell Norman Morris, AM, is an Australian singer-songwriter and guitarist who had five Australian top ten singles during the late 1960s and early 70s. And on the 1st of July 2008, the Australian Recording Industry Association recognised Morris' stature when he was inducted into the Aria Hall of Fame. With a staggering 50-year career and counting, Russell Morris returns uh, with his brand new album Black and Blue Heart and that was produced by the very highly regarded Nick D. Dia, Bruce Springsteen, Pearl Jam, Powderfinger alongside co-producer Bernard Fanning. Russell continues to find new way, unique ways to challenge himself creatively. 50 years is a long gig. Welcome to Viewpoints, Russell Morris. Thanks, Henry. Pleasure to be with you. Now, it's a long, long way, isn't it, from 1966 when you were just an 18-year-old kid and you formed the Melbourne group Somebody's Image. Uh, still remember those days? Yeah, vaguely. I, um, <laughs> it's sort of, it's a lot of things. I'm just one of those people that I'm not really good at remembering a whole lot of stuff because people will remind me of things I've done and um, half of the things I think, was that me? Do I really do that? You know, so I don't know whether people um, uh, make it up sometimes or whether I actually did uh, get involved in certain situations. So I, I'm um, <clears throat> I'm not good at uh, recalling a whole lot of stuff from there because it was a, a, a period of mayhem. I do recall certain lighthouse moments, but that's about it. Hmm. Although um, I, I remember chatting with you off air, you do recall your school days, and uh, you did say that school was something. Uh, obviously, I'm interested in this because I'm a school principal. But school was something you couldn't wait to get out of when you're a young fellow there in Richmond. Um, what happened in your school age years? Oh, um, isn't it funny? Yeah, I can look at a school photograph from primary school and practically name every kid in the photograph. But uh, someone I met. Uh, eight weeks ago, I'm likely to forget their name. It's very bizarre. Um, <clears throat> but I've always been like that, even when I was younger. I, um, but those things, they get, they get hardwired into your brain. And going to school for me was, um, it was a, sort of a, a little bit of a trauma because um, I'm not really good at, uh, not so much towing the line, because I can tow the line, but I'm not really good at doing things that are, sequenced and monotonous things that you do over and over again and mm. even to this day I'm very very bad at um, having to do the same thing and uh, I get extremely bored very quickly and I felt school to, for me was a waste of time it was only later on in years that I actually um, started to self-educate myself but I didn't have the mind at that stage I think my mind matured much later Mm, fair point. So what led you into music in the first place? Can you recall any particular trigger moments or was it a gradual process? Well, my mother was a, a huge music fan. She had lots of uh, LPs and she would have like uh, Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, Elvis Presley, and I would listen to that. But I never really had any desire or designs of being a singer. I just liked it. And... Um, I ended up getting a guitar and sort of trying to play that, and I was pretty hopeless at that. So I 
and then I tried to play clarinet, and I really just danced along, really. And I was doing a, um, I went on from Richmond Tech, which I, which I went to, and then I went on to Swinburne. I started to do a diploma of economics and accountancy, and my friends formed a band, and their lead singer was pinched by another band and they said to me do you want to join I said well not really I want to finish my diploma because I really I have to have something in life that I can hang on to they said well listen just sing with us over Christmas and um, we'll see what happens and you can go back to school next year and I said okay let's do that and I did I joined them for the Christmas break and uh, really that was probably the beginning of the end for me because all of a sudden I had no structure in my life and I sort of seemed to focus Easily when I've got no structure, when I'm not made to do certain things. Mm, that's a fair point. Now, t- to a large extent, um, your 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 career is defined. You've been doing it for fifty years, and that of itself is an iconic achievement. Most uh, singers and <coughs> rock bands don't last that sort of distance uh, at all, Russell. But the real thing is probably the thing that most people would uh, think of Russell Morris as the defining hit. Looking back on the real thing, uh, how much does that epitomise you and your career, do you feel? Oh, it, it does in other people's eyes. Strangely enough, um, everyone considers me the real thing. But if you look at <laughs> later on in 2013, Sharkmouth was the, probably the most successful thing I've had mm. um, up until that date. Like it, it absolutely eclipsed all the other albums that I've done. The, the real, uh, the real thing I think stayed in the charts for sixty-four weeks or something. Mm. But Sharkmouth was in the blues and jazz charts. It was was on the main charts as well, but in the blues and jazz charts for three hundred weeks. Yes. Now, it's interesting that, and, and I, I guess from the, the creative side of you, Sharkmouth was, uh, as you say, uh, uh, far more far more out there than the real thing in that sense. But uh, the real thing, which had a shorter span, had had uh, has been so much better remembered. Do you find that frustrating at all? No, no, I'm, I'm grateful for it because it's always been a life life jacket I can hold on to when things get tough. You can always go out and play the real thing. And it it's one of those songs that uh, it came along at a time and it was really, really different. And that's why people remember it, I think. It's one of those songs that was out of the norm, was out of the mould, and uh, particularly for Australia. And people went, wow, what what's happening here? And it became a, a lighthouse. And people do remember. And it did also sum up 60s in uh, Australia, I think it was probably the most iconic 60s song that people remember because it was psychedelic and mm. it was bizarre and it was long and all that sort of stuff and and it was the first one of the very first film clips that anyone had ever made in Australia and all that sort of stuff. It, it certainly, it certainly was. Um, at the time, I can't recall. Maybe you can still remember. It was so different that uh, I do know that um, a lot of DJs didn't want to play long songs at that point of time. I know there are a few others around uh, that that lasted a long time, but it was so different. And often record labels are so conservative, just like um, publishing houses. How did you find the reception towards it? Uh, and and a young. Russell Morris, who still hadn't, you know, cut it as a, a superstar rock singer. Well, it's, it's sort of ironic in a way. 
there were two. There have been two moments in my life when record companies have not been interested in what I'm doing and actually don't want anything to do with it. The first one was the real thing. We did the real thing, and when EMI heard it, went they went ballistic. They thought it was the biggest piece of rubbish they'd ever heard in their life, and they refused to release it. So Ian and I, uh, this is Ian Meldrum, drove to Sydney and went to visit all the DJs and all the uh, program managers. We'd already done it in Melbourne. We got a petition signed. So EMI said that they would originally release it in Melbourne to try and make their money back, but they wouldn't even think of releasing it Australia-wide because it was too embarrassing. So we went to Sydney and got all these petitions and people ringing up and it was released, but rather reluctantly EMI really didn't want that song out and it came out and it became uh, what it was and same thing happened with Sharkmouth. I couldn't get a deal. Not one record company was interested. No one wanted to release they thought it was just yeah, just rubbish. So it's funny. Um, you worry about record companies and what they think and sometimes Despite themselves, the song can, can the songs can work without the record company believing in it. It's quite amazing there, Russell. And writing and creating songs is such a personal thing. Um, how do you handle, from a personal side, that 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 form of well, it's a rejection, really, isn't it? Yeah, it it it, it is quite personal. It's like having your children and. Uh, standing your children up and all of a sudden a couple of people go, oh, I don't like those. They're, they're horrible kids, you know, because they're, they're, they're quite close to you and uh, with songs, not as personal as children, but they're still part of you and you you put them out there or if you're writing poetry or you put it out there and you're hoping that someone will have empathy for what you've written. Uh, someone will be able to relate to what you've done emotionally. And when they don't, it's sort of you think, wow, am I just not touching people or am I just so far off the mark? When I thought what I'd written was good, is it, mm. is it, am I deluded? And consequently, that breeds into a lot of performers an incredible insecurity. Um, heaven, knows, <clears throat> heaven knows I wanted to be an actor before a, a singer. I would have been worse as an actor because they, they, they suffer from dreadful insecurities. And you just always feel that someone's going to discover and say, you're a fake. You're not really very good at what you do. You know, it's one of those things because you don't feel at times. You feel like you're guessing and trying to sort of feel your way through a dark cavern with a candle. There's probably a song in that. When you take a short break, Russ, can you hold the line? Yes, no worries, Henry. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosser. We're going to have a chat with Russell Morris, iconic uh, singer-songwriter, Australian singer-songwriter. Welcome back, Russell. Thanks, Henry. Good Russ- to be with you. Oh, it's great to have you on the program. And um, I can recall, I've still got a good memory. I can remember uh, as a teenager being um, in awe of your music. And it was so different to so many of the other pop singers of the time, many of whom... Uh, were very popular, but you did stand out as different. Has that ever bothered you, being somebody who isn't uh, really in the mainstream, uh, even in your field? 
No, no. Well, I remember when, because uh, Ian Meldrum produced and managed somebody's image, and when I left somebody's image, he continued on managing and producing my records. And we'd recorded two songs, and they were quite nice songs, two Hans Paulson songs. And I remember driving up Punt Road with Ian, and I said, Ian, this is not good enough. It's not going to work. And he said, why not? They're great songs. I said, yeah, they are. I said, but I said you could give all those songs to whoever was around at the time, which was John Farnham, mm. um, Nomi Rowe, yep. Ron Burns, um, all of, all of, I said, you could give it to all of those guys and they could all record them and do a decent job of it. I said, Ian, it's not different enough. We've got to find something that's really, really different that people are going to think, what is that? And to Ian's credit, he said, you know what, you're right. And that's when we started looking for an unusual song. And... When we found the real thing, Johnny Young played it to us, and he played us some other songs first of all. And we said, yeah, they're very nice, and no, nah, not quite what we want. Have you got anything else? And he said, oh, no, not really. So I've written this song, which is sort of like a, a joke, really. It's mainly for a rock and roll band. And he played us the real thing. And we <laughs> looked at him, and he said, he said, that's the song we want. And he said, what? You're crazy. He said, a solo artist wouldn't record something like that. I said, that's exactly why we're going to do it. Good point. And moving forward to now, your music is different now to um, what it was then, and obviously you can't be static. Looking at it now, what's influencing your music these days? It's funny that I, I, I don't know half the time, Henry. Um, when I did the blues album, I've always loved blues, and I always wanted to go back and play blues again, because when somebody's image first started, we would play Tamla Motown and blues and rhythm and blues. So I always wanted to go back and do that, and I accidentally fell upon the idea of writing about Australia and about Australian situations like criminals and gamblers and political situations and all that sort of stuff. Um, but normally I write um, abstractly, like I will play guitar, like I just wrote a song this morning, and I'm listening to it, and I'm trying to think if the chorus has enough credibility because the words just all fell out rather than the with whereas when i'm writing a blues song about a certain subject i have a subject say squizzy taylor i have when he was born i have mm. what he did in his life i have how he died so i have beginning middle and end whereas when you're writing abstractly you don't you only have something that comes out of nowhere and sometimes you will end up with a beautiful verse and maybe a pretty good chorus, but you can't quite finish it. You can't quite get the next verse and make it really cohesive. And tying it to the chorus sometimes can be a problem. They're the problems. And with this song, I've just started today, is, is I'm thinking, does that, does that chorus make sense? It sounds lovely. I really like the way the words sound. Mm -hmm. And I thought they're a bit naive, but I just quite like the naivety of them. But does it make sense of the words in the first chorus, uh, first verse? So that, that can be a real problem when you're writing abstractly. Yes. Are there many songs just on that point that you've started and you've got to this point 
and they're they're still somewhere in a drawer, somewhere in 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 a file. You've you've just been unable to finish them, and they're in the back uh, in the back back pocket somewhere. No, I let them go. I just let them go like a a fish of caught, and you release him back and let him run back. Um, some people are they're very um, meticulous and they keep all their ideas. But I would I'd bore myself to death running through all my old ideas. So if I can't finish a song reasonably quickly, I move on from it. Now, and now, uh, bef- I never go we, back. Before we started, I was talking to you and you said it would be a good uh, question to bring up in the interview. I said, um, the oldies among us, uh, we, we, we're nostalgic and we love love the, the, the songs of the 60s and 70s, uh, On the Wings of an Eagle, etc. Um, the real thing. Do you ever get sick of playing them over and over again, given that you're a person, a self-confessed person who says they get bored quickly? Well, I, I would, but uh, because I, I am able to introduce new material. Cause I, see, when I've worked with um, Daryl Cotton and Jim Keyes, I went crazy because we were doing the same songs night after night after night after night. And I ended up saying to Daryl and Jim, I'm going to work with Brian Cadd as well. And they got a little bit upset with me. And I said, listen, I will still be working with you guys, but I cannot do this just monotonously over and over again. The same songs, the same dialogue. And so I started working with Brian. And that started to go along the same line. So that's when, at that stage, I did Shark Mouth. And that became such a big hit that then I was able to do my own shows and I could really uh, introduce new songs. So I'd do the old ones because I wanted, I knew people wanted to hear them and as a performer you're wearing two hats my favorite hat to wear is my songwriter hat mm-hmm. but you've also got to wear another hat called a performer hat and people actually pay money to come and see you mm-hmm. and uh the last thing you want to do is jip them and have them go home disappointed so i i do try and do across the boards but i also look at the songs differently say if I played the real thing tonight, I went round to someone's private party and they had 20 people, and I played the real thing, it would be vastly different to when I played it when I worked with um, Beach Boys, for instance, at Kings Park or some of the biggest shows I've done. Um, uh, just some of the, like the My Music Bowl I've done, things like that in the Opera House, some of those big concerts different each time and it's almost like I'm a professional dancer and when I play the real thing it's like I've been a professional dancer all my life and I play the real thing which is probably imagine it's like a rumba or it's a samba or something and I'm a professional ballroom dancer and I dance it's almost like I dance with a different partner so if you play the real thing to a crowd of 5,000 it's vastly different playing it to a room of 120 people. The nuance is different, mm. the reaction's different, and it feels like a new dance every time. So it's not it's not a real trial for me. I can, although I do find myself singing songs that I know so well, thinking about um, what I'm having for dinner that night or what I'm <laughs> going to do the next day because it's, I'm on automatic pilot. And um, But it is, I do snap in and out of it, whereas if you do that with a brand new song, you'll get lost, mm. because it's not second nature to not you. second nature. And even sometimes, 
capturing the real thing. I'll be playing and the band will be looking at me like, where are you? What are you doing? And at the end, I'll say, what happened? I'll say, you dropped the third verse. Mm-hmm. So that, that can happen. if You've got to be very careful when you go into you automatic do. pilot. Time's got away from us. Russ, one last question. Very few people in the music industry uh, make it through 50 years and, and people still want to listen to them and they still have the fire in the belly. You're part of an elite group. Uh, reflecting on that 50 years, what's the, what are the keys to longevity in your profession? Oh, I think I've been really lucky to have some earlier hits, which you can u- usually use as a lighthouse to swim to when you're out in the ocean trying to create new music and it's, it's all you're sinking with it, so you have to swim back there. And I've, I've, that allowed me to go for a long, long time, I think it was about 30 years, till I had another gigantic number of albums, which was um, Shark Mouth, uh, Van Diemen's Land, and Red Dirt, Red Heart. Uh, now I've had uh, Black and Blue Heart. So it's luck. There's an enormous amount of luck that makes someone successful. I think probably 60 to 70% luck, 30% really hard work. Mm. And because um, I can name all the lucky moments in my life that came along, and they without them, nothing would have happened. So I, I think, and trying to be a little bit different, not trying to do the same, but being the same can be really advantageous. Just look at Bob Dylan. Although Bob Dylan has changed a lot through his career. He's gone to the lay, lady lay time and mm. all that sort of stuff. So I think to keep people guessing a little bit and to still keep what you had, the essence, but just surprise them. Mm. And, of course, I think the fact that you're Russell Morris, the, the person you are, just like all those other iconic survivors of the decades, is something unique in your DNA that's got you there, Russ. Russell, it's been a real pleasure having you on the program and many years I've enjoyed the pleasure of listening to your music. Uh, and your music's very good uh, because for me because um, I can listen to your music when I'm in an upbeat moment and it also has the capacity to be very um, healing in, in those other moments and not all music can do that so thank you thanks for saying that Henry that's lovely thank you that was Russell Morris one of Australia's greatest um, pop singers singer-songwriters of uh, the last 50 years this is we'll take a short break mm-hmm. 